So this evening, I would like to talk about um, meditation and creative awareness. But first, I'd like to look a little at maybe some of the obstacles you might have encountered today when you did the meditation. The first thing that you might have encountered, very likely, is pain. Uh, and this is a, a little unavoidable. I mean, we don't want you to suffer, but when you sit, you know, it's a little different. If you sit at home 30 minutes once a day, hmm, yes, I can do this, especially if you sit on a nice, soft armchair. <laughs> but here, you know, you're sitting, most of you, on the floor, and, uh, you know, one forty-five minutes, 30 minutes, ooh, another 45 minutes. And I presume that possibly the worst might have been the second sitting in the afternoon. Very often it's kind of where it's the most painful. This last sitting in the evening generally is very nice and short. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a little life in a way. Uh, I think in a way, as I said again, what is very important with pain as a criteria, is that if when you get up from the cushion, the pain continues for the next hour and you're not sitting, then you definitely need to change your posture. You need to sit on a chair, you need to try a stool, you need to do something. But if when you stand up, the pain goes totally, it's just because you were sitting there longer than you are used to. And also what is interesting with pain on a retreat is that you have different 45 minutes. 40, some 45 minutes, I mean, it's fine. And then some other 45 minutes, this is like, when is she going to ring the bell? Especially Stephen. I give, generally, I give you two minutes, but Stephen is tougher than me, so you don't get less two minutes. Who knows, you could awaken in these two minutes. <laughs> so what I find interesting uh, with pain, and I'll talk more about sensation tomorrow, is actually to see that the way we feel about the pain depends a lot on our state of mind. If you are really concentrated, you're aware of the pain, but generally you don't grasp at it. You have developed this spaciousness, so the pain is like everything else. Appearing, you can look at it in a different way. If you are totally distracted, if you go into an amazing daydream, again, the pain, you're not here. You're somewhere else, so you really don't feel anything because you are lost in abstraction. But the problem is that most of the time we are half-half. I've concentrated, I've distracted, and then we really feel the pain. And then we feel it should not be there, and why is it still there? And, and the worst is when you think, I have this pain now, I am going to have the exact same pain every sitting, every day, until the end. And then, I mean, it's awful. So in a way, to, to try to play with the pain. If you have too much pain, sit on a chair. But to try to play again with how you view it, how you 
react to it, how you respond to it. And in a way, how can you creatively engage with it? And to me, I must say, when I sat on the floor and also sometimes when I sit on the chair, it's interesting to kind of to go inside the pain, to use the vipassana aspect of the meditation, to really look deeply into the experience. And then there is sensation, and they are relatively intense, but we don't feel intensely about it. This is what is interesting. You can go inside it, and it kind of moves and shifts. So I hope you are not in too much pain, and that at the same time you can kind of play with it, look at it, try to kind of see how to creatively engage with it. Then the other thing you might encounter is sleepiness, especially on the first two days. And also some people are more likely to fall asleep than others. This, I mean, when I was in Korea, uh, I mean, the Korean, they really used to sit. And also they really, most of them can sleep anywhere, anytime. <laughs> and they have an amazing capacity. So often in Korea, they sit. I mean, they sit 10 hours a day. They sit a lot. They sit and they... And when I was in Korea, one of my first uh, three-month retreat with the nuns, they were amazed. You know, one, one time one came to me and said, but oh, your meditation it must be amazing. You never sleep. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I think too much. I can't sleep. And so again, some people have lots of thought that keeps them awake. Some people have a tendency to sleep. And in a way, to see each have different difficulties. So again, to, to see how can I be with this? How can I, in a way, again, creatively engage with this? So that's, you could do a little what I suggested this afternoon. Straighten the back, open the eyes wide, look up, and ask a question. Who is sitting here? Who is breathing? Another thing you can do is just to walk briskly for 10 minutes before you come and sit. At the same time, it's very important to be aware that when you walk, you're not asleep. So that's a, at least you're not sleepy then, if you have a tendency towards that. And also to see with sleepiness, it arises, it stays a while, and generally it passes. So you know, just to, to see how can I be with this. Again, trying to, to play with it. Another one is restlessness. And this is, uh, you sit and you kind of feel nearly like you're on an ant's hip, you know. And you, and you feel that like you can't breathe and you oh, oh, want to get out. And there the thing is to really just sit. Come back to the image of the mountain. Really Try to see yourself as sitting like a mountain, as open as the ocean. And try to see if the restlessness can in a way pass through you, that you can feel it, and again you creatively engage with it. You don't fight it, you don't give in to it, but you just try to be with it in a different way. And then generally it passes. So again, try these different things that arises, to see how they arise, try to creatively engage with it, and passes away. Another thing, sometimes we think about meditation, and that we can only meditate if there is no sound. And personally, I don't think this is a good idea. 
I mean, we don't live in, in kind of vacuum places. And so, in a way, instead of if somebody coughs or moves or sneezes or whatever, instead of saying, oh, you know, this noise, but instead to see it as a bell of mindfulness. Because what is interesting with sounds is that it will bring you back. You see, you are with the breath, and then you go away, and then you sound, somebody coughing, somebody moving, and you come back here. So to see that often the sound inside this room or outside will bring us back, and then we can go back to the breath. So in a way, using the sound as a means to turn us back. Another thing to be careful about in meditation is what I would call cultivation and effect. When we sit in meditation in a retreat, we are cultivating meditation. We are cultivating samatha and vipassana, concentration and experiential inquiry. That's what we do. This is, in a way, our job. My job, your job, when we sit, when we walk in meditation, that's what we do. But what is interesting is often when we sit in meditation, we are not actually so much cultivating these two things, as looking at the effect that should be happening. And I think to be very careful how we, we move from being cultivating something to go into measuring the effect of what we are doing. And then we're not really in the cultivation anymore. And then you think, but why? Why do I still have those thoughts? Why? I read in this book, I must you know, start to to float in the air, or I must have this, that, or another, or my friend experienced that. Why can't I experience this? Because you have different conditions. And I think what the description in book are always a bit kind of one-dimensional. I don't think they tell you the whole of it, if I may say so. And what, how was it before? How was it after? How was it a year later, or whatever? How often did it happen, and all that? So yes, we can have uh, meditative experiences when we calm and we clear. But this doesn't come all the time. But this doesn't mean that we are not meditating. So in a way, we, sh we must be careful of not basing our view of meditation on its immediate effect. This, I think, is a danger. Personally, I really believe, and otherwise I would not teach it, that it works. But it works in a different way than we think. I think it works more at the level of releasing. It helps us to release our holding, our grasping. So I think the effect we can really experience in meditation is very subtle, what I would call effect. That even if we had a bad, what we call a bad meditation, at the end of it generally, there is a little difference. So you know, to be careful of that moving to checking ourselves up instead of just doing the job, which is in a way to just cultivate the meditation, to just apply ourselves, trying to concentrate, trying to look deeply into the experience. And now I'd like to look a little at what I would call the tools of awareness. 
to very much see that we what we're trying to do, especially what I try to do, is to give you tools so that you can, in a way, then take these tools when you go into your daily life. And so that's why each day you will, will have a different tools. Today the breath, tomorrow the sensations, after that the sounds, after that the feelings, after that a question, after that loving kindness, and we might finish with equanimity. And so in a way to see that each method is within the same framework of concentration and inquiry, also within the same framework of trying to cultivate a certain type of creative awareness, but that each, in a way, might be more adapted to one's condition, and also that each has a slightly different effect. And that's why it's interesting to use them in different ways in daily life. And so what I'm trying to suggest here is that you try them out. You don't need to do it every sitting for a day, but to just try it at least for a sitting. And then it's like a seed, and you can remember in your daily life, oh, yes, I could use that. Oh, yes, I could use this. So this is very much the idea between, behind this framework. So the breath. The breath, I think... It's very useful because it's there all the time, as long as you are not asthmatic and then you have a different relationship with the breath. And generally the breath, if we focus on the breath, generally we become calmer. This seems to kind of have that effect. Also personally, I think that the breath is useful to make us more aware at an experiential level of our life, of our potential in this life. Often we seem to forget how amazing it is that we breathe, that we are alive. That at any given moment we have a potential for being creatively aware, wise, compassionate. And so in a way, I think to be aware of the breath, to me, makes us aware of our life, of the potential in our life in this moment. But the, the breath is also... Um, a tool that we can use when we are busy, when we feel agitated, when we have what I would call the gasping mind. you kind of going about your day and suddenly you be, oh, I am busy, I have this to do, that to do, and you kind of... <laughs> and then you just stop. You just see, oh, I am getting stressed, agitated, and you just stop for a minute. And you just watch the breath for a minute. And generally, it can, you know... Just calm you down a little. Then an hour later, you might again, a little energy level, then you can again do it for a minute. And I think in that way, it can help us to kind of come back to the moment and in a way, again, be less caught in the soul, but just become to come back to a more multi-perspectival experience. Then you have the sensation. And tomorrow I'll talk about you know, just being aware of the body. So moving from just being aware of one sensation, the sensation of breathing, to a more general sensation of the body. And again, we can do this in different ways. What I think is important with the body is that it grounds you inside yourself. And it helps you to be less, again, back with such tendency to be into abstraction. 
We go into stories, into proliferation, rumination. And I think the, coming back to the body, what is really going on now in this moment? Not the story of the past, not the story of the future, but what is really going on now? And so I think the body, to be aware of the body of sensation, can actually make us more grounded. And I think this is, again, something we can use when we go into abstraction, coming back to the body. And I think this is why the walking meditation is also very important. Because when we do walking meditation, being aware of the body, and notice when you go walking, what do you do? You go walking, you go walking because you want to go for a nice walk, enjoy the countryside and the fresh air. For five minutes, you're present, you really feel the fresh air and the, see the flowers. And then you're back in London, you're back yesterday, you, you're somewhere else. Very interesting how so quickly, in a way, we're not present. And I think the walking meditation, the body meditation, really helps us to ground, to come back here. And also to kind of experience ourselves, you know, again, in a more multi-perspectival way, and not just be caught in the story we have. And at that level, we can use everything. When we wash the dishes, when we brush our teeth, anything. When we, when we stand, we work on the computer, when we work on the gar in the garden, we can use the body to just, as a means, to, to come back to what is going on now. Then you have the sounds. And I think the sound, listening, is very useful. Because often meditation has a tendency to make us maybe too inward-looking. We're too kind of focused inside ourselves. And the sound opens us to the world. Also, the sounds are unpredictable. You can't control when the rook is going to do its calling or when the car or whatever. And so it's unpredictable. We kind of just wait and we listen to sounds. So it's generally very opening. And so that's a, a kind of a very good method. Also, what is interesting with the sound is that we can be very sensitive to sound. And again, in the same way, you can go inside your knee and experience it differently. You can go inside the sound and experience it differently. I have had these experiences where once I was working in the garden and there was somebody with a, a drill, kind of breaking concrete. I mean, it was really noisy. But whenever I went into it with a listening meditation inside the sound, the experience was so different. Instead, oh, I can't stand this sound, it must stop. It was, wow, this is amazing. It's so powerful. So, it was a, so in a way, to kind of look inside. And then again, we have this creative engagement. We experience it very differently. Another thing with sound is that I think it trains us to do what I would call a more creative listening. Because when we listen, what do we do? I feel that generally when we listen, when we communicate, talk to people, when we listen to somebody, we generally, I would say, do three things. The first one is that actually we wait for them to stop because we have something so much more interesting to say, and so we wait. At the same time, we try to remember what we have so much more interesting to say. So actually listening one third. Instead of just listening, and if we really just listen, 
Often we have much better idea in the moment the person stops. The next way we listen, and that is a very interesting one, we listen, we look like we're listening, we're all in the right posture, and we are totally distracted thinking of you know, shopping or thinking of anything but what they say. And then the person says, what do you think? And you have no idea what they say. I mean, but your, I mean, your here is functioning. This is what is interesting. I mean, your here is there. There is no problem. But because consciously you were not there, you did not hear it. Or we listen and we overreact. We're overgrasping at what we listen. And then we kind of caught in it. And to me, this is the art of listening. The art of meditative listening that we start to cultivate when we do listening meditation here. To just listen. And just be present to whatever sounds appear. Without grasping, without rejecting. And then we can bring this into our communication. And often we will be very surprised that when we do this in that way, when we lessen with stability and openness in that way, often we have such better idea, idea we never thought we would have. We can be extremely creative. Then we're going to do some, um, a day about feelings, but that I'll explain more then, and also I think I might have a, a, a whole talk about that, so I'll talk more about it then. Then toward the end, I will bring something very different that uh, some of you might not be familiar with, which will be questioning. And so we might spend a day sitting in meditation and just asking inside, silently, what is this? What is this? And that's what we'll be doing. <laughs> and it's a met method I learned in Korea, which I personally find very useful. Again, not everybody likes it. If you don't like it, don't do it, don't worry about it. But what is very important with this method is that actually it's not about answering. We're not asking to get an answer. We're just asking for the sake of questioning. And what is interesting is that when we do this kind of meditation, is that actually it develops in the whole body and mind a kind of like more flexibility. You start to think in a much more, again, multi-perspective of way. You start to have more choices. I think this method is good for de-fixing. Kind of sometimes we're so fixed and so solid. And you kind of say, wait a minute, what is this? And you kind of start to look at things, again, in a more creative way. And so that's what kind of we'll uh, kind of do for a day. And then, of course, there is a loving-kindness meditation where we cultivate really a kind of like a, a loving heart. And what is interesting with this one, it really helps with fear and with resentment. And so it's kind of really, in a way, to help us to develop, in a way, kind of a view of the world, which is more benign. Like we wish well for the world. We wish well for ourselves. And that actually set up something within us. It kind of dissolves a little the barrier of fear, of resentment, of cruelty. And so again, it's something that we'll cultivate toward the end. And what was interesting about that one 
was that when I did it once in, uh, in Scotland, in Findon, a big community, and I did it for about 15 people from uh, working in a community, and we did a, a day of this, and one of them said at the beginning, because you, you recite sentences toward different category of people, the one you like, neutral, dislike. And then one person said, at the beginning of the day, I had so many people in the dislike category. And then by the end of the day, they all moved up to the like category. So in a way, even though that was not his intention, in a way it had that effect, kind of opening his heart, looking at itself and people in a different way. So I will introduce these different things through the, through the week for you to cultivate, to help you with your meditation but also to bring them later as tool of awareness in your daily life. But what is important to see is that none of them is better than the other. Very important to see. No method is a sacred method. Because I think generally we sold, if you go to a certain tradition, they'll tell you, this is the way. I mean, it's interesting. This is the good way. This is the right way. This is the only way everybody must do this. We must be careful of that. Here I'm just suggesting to try these things out to see if it's helpful for you or not. Some might be more helpful for, than others, and some you might think, why am I doing this? Then don't do it. Don't worry about it. You, you don't, nothing is sacred. I think it's very important. It's all tools, things to help us to develop concentration, inquiry, to develop calmness and clarity, wisdom and compassion. This is... So, uh, this is what is a reason, not an end in itself. I must be the best person on the breath or the best one on listening. I'm not expecting you to tell me all the sounds you've listened to. I am not interested in that. I'm just interested in you learning to listen in a stable and open way. So each method, just do one thing at a time. Don't, I mean, you know, of course you can do the, start with the breath, then do the listening. Of course, they're not opposed. They, a lot of them are very complementary. But what I would recommend generally is do one, one thing at a time during any sitting. Another thing is my, what you might find over time is that one is your main one. This is what you rather like to do. So you do this most of the time, but time to time you might do a side one. So you might like to do the breath, but then time to time you might do a bit of listening or a bit of questioning. You might like the question. Do that most of the time, time to time a bit of the breath, listening or loving kindness. So to see that all these tools, you don't have to do it all the time. It's like when you have a toolkit. You don't use a hammer for everything. You know? But if you are a carpenter, you will use the saw more than a brush if you were a painter. So each, in a way, use the tools that are good for one. And then also use the other one when it's necessary. Then to look at uh, the meditation and to see what are we doing. We are cultivating concentration and inquiry. And I think this is very important to see. You might be in the Tibetan tradition, you might be in the Zen tradition, in the Theravada tradition, in whatever generally Buddhist tradition, generally what makes it really, I would say, effective, any method, is when you have the two, samatha and vipassana, concentration and 
experiential inquiry together. And together, they help us to develop creative awareness. But in each tradition, they will do them in very different way. For example, in the Tibetan tradition, you have what they call analytical meditation. When you concentrate on one theme, death, for example, and then you inquire into it in a different way. So again, they come together in that way. And know that Tibetan method is, uh, for example, to... So, I mean, again, there are different types, but one type of Mahamudra is you focus on the thought, but then you focus on the space between the thought. So again, focusing on one thing and then looking at a bit of it in a different way. In the Zen tradition, you have the question, like using the what is this. You focus on the question, but you ask the question in a questioning way. So again, you have the two together. In the Theravada tradition, you have the focusing on the breath, for example, or on the sound, and then you look into the experience of its changing nature or its conditioned nature. So generally, the two come together because each of these two things has a different effect again. With the concentration you become generally more calm and there is more space. But why is that? It, again, it's not magical. But it's because it works. How does it work? You, let's say focus on the breath. You focus on the breath, you go away. Maybe you st go into planning, or you go into daydreaming, or you go into whatever it is. But you don't go too far because you remember the breath. And this is why concentration works. Concentration actually works on our habits. Mental habits, emotional habits, physical habits. Generally, we are caught by them. We so identify with our habits that they appear and we just go with it. But meditation, focusing, makes us go a little but not very far. So when we come back to the breath, we actually do two things. One is we don't feed the habit, and at the same time we dissolve its power. And then we bring back, the, for example, the mental habit to its creative function. So this is why in meditation we're not trying to stop thought, feeling, sensation. But actually what we are doing is bring them back to their creative functioning. Instead of them being caught in their habitual, very repetitive patterning. That's what happened with concentration. And so that's why over time it becomes more spacious because the habits are less solid. They start to dissolve a bit. And so instead of planning all the time, you just plan when you need to. Instead of judging all the time, you just judge when you need to. So anyway, that's why you know, it makes a difference to try to concentrate. Then you have inquiry. And inquiry is using, and this is very important, that's why meditation is not just about concentration. It's also about vipassana. What is very important with this term vipassana is that it means looking deeply. But vipassana can also refer to a tradition that you find in the Theravada tradition, which is in the Southeast Asia, Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka. 
But in a way, all Buddhist traditions are vipassana. But they're not all the vipassana tradition. I hope you don't get too confused here. Next thing also is that samatha and vipassana can both refer to the, culti- to the activity and to the result. And that's why it gets even more confusing. So samatha can mean concentration, the fact that I try to concentrate, and samatha also refers to the state of concentration, where my mind might be very quiet and calm. Same with vipassana. Vipassana can be translated as looking deeply, but a lot of the time vipassana can be translated as insight, understanding about something at which you have looked deeply. And sometimes people say, how many insights have you got on that retreat or whatever? (laughs) So you must be careful. You see, we do the vipassana, we do the looking deeply, and then the insight might come or not. Personally, I would say that most of the time on retreat, Nothing happens. I'm sorry, but (laughs) nothing happens. Why nothing happens is because we generally don't hurry you about. You don't have too much to do. So it's generally relatively quiet. Unless you bring something from your life, not much is going to happen. So I would say generally your insights, you might have a few while you're here, but you will have more insight when you are in your daily life. Because in your daily life, you're going to apply the vipassana you have developed here. And then you say, ah, I see this differently. I get it. That's what I'm doing. Oh, that's what's happening. So I would say, in a way, the insights are more in the daily life with this creative engagement. So the experiential inquiry, the vipassana, the looking deeply, is actually to look at things differently. Because we have, a, again, a tendency to be very fixed, very solid. I am like this. It is like that. And actually, things are changing, moving, conditional. So in a way, it's to be more in tune, in a way, with the way things happen to be. To notice how changing your thoughts are your sensation, your feelings. If you don't attach to them, often they pass faster than you would think normally. If you don't say, it is like that, it is always like this, it will never change. Then you've gone somewhere else. But if you go inside the feeling itself, what is this feeling? These funny feelings here. As it is, not as I start to name it and associate it with other things. But right now, maybe it's a little heavy, maybe it's a little light, maybe it's in itself. It's just a sensation in the body. So we need to kind of look at things more in this experiential way. So we're not thinking about something, but we go inside the experience. And of course, going inside the experience we might see it very differently. And that's where the insight would be. So in a way, you have the calmness of the concentration with the clarity, the brightness of the experiential inquiry, and together, they help us to develop creative awareness. 
that then will be activated in our daily life. And that's what we do when we sit in meditation. I would say we develop the power of creative awareness. And to me, I have seen this again and again in my life, in my experience. Because I would say creative awareness has two aspects, acceptance and transformation. It makes us see what is going on, good and bad. And it makes us see what is it I have to accept and work with. What is it I can transform? So in a way, to me, that again and again I have seen that. The, the creative awareness helping me to see, hey, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel this way? What is going on here? Because sometimes, in a way, we don't appreciate ourselves. I think the creative awareness helps us to accept but not just negative things. I think this is important. Meditation is not just to work on our negative things. Not at all. Meditation is also to work on our positive things, positive quality, positive capacity. And for us to recognize them and to really, in a way, trust more in our potential. And through that, be also more ready to creatively engage with what is difficult. I'll tell you a story to finish with. And this is when I was in Korea. And this is a story with persimmon. Persimmon. And the Four Noble Truths that Stephen will talk about shortly. This was my early day as a nun in Korea. And I, did not, I could not remember all these lists, you know, four of these, five of that, ten of this. And, but I was a Western nun and I generally had to take care of the tourists who came, were interested in Buddhism and so forth. And this was autumn when also we picked persimmon. There are trees, there are fruit in trees you, you get there. So uh, we had some guests and I was explaining about to them the four noble truths. First truth, truth about suffering, second one, second one, second one. And then I see a monk taking a bucket of persimmon. But they're my persimmon. <laughs> I pick them. He's taking them. No way. So I go up and, hey, you can't take my persimmon. Mine. So, okay with them. so I take my persimmon. Then I come back. Second truth. The cause of suffering, craving. <laughs> Third one, cessation of craving. Then fourth one, the noble eightfold path. And I thought, wow, I remembered everything today. Great. Then they go, and then my friend and other nuns say, hey, did you see what you did? I said, what did I do? I was just explaining the vulnerable truth, you know. And I, I, I did it well this time. She said, the persimmon, I mean, you were shouting at the monk. I had been totally blind to it. I just, I went into automatic pilot. This is my persimmon, he can't have them. And then I thought, oh, that's what I have done. And so in a way, sometimes we're not aware of things. And sometimes somebody points it out. All the time we become aware of it. But I did not feel, oh, I am the terrible person. I just thought, oh, I have to be more aware. I have to be more aware of what happened. You know, when I think something is mine, what happened when I become angry? What goes on? How does it feel in my body? What do I do with my mind? How can I be more aware so this is what we're developing. Not to judge, but to see 
What is going on? So that's what I wanted to say today. We have about five minutes. Uh, if anybody has any questions or comments. Judging is a tricky one. <coughs> judging is a tricky one because you have the judging of the judging of the judging. This, that's, that's the problem with awareness. We have to be very careful because, you see, we have different habits. You have daydreaming, ruminating, plotting. I mean, you have different ones. But judging is a specific one. And I would say judging, we have to deal with it a little differently because Judging is so kind of the judging of the judging, you know, that I think you have to deal with it as with a good friend, but a difficult friend. <laughs> I mean, you know the difference between a good, easy friend and a good, difficult friend. A good, difficult friend, you're a little more careful, aren't you? Kind of, you know, prepare yourself a bit and you're a little careful what you say, how you are. When a good friend, you're more relaxed. And I think with judging, it's the same. We must kind of see, ah, judging. And we must try to have what I would call kind of like a kind of a playful relationship with it. To see, ah, here it is again. And not, oh, oh, it's always there. This is, you know, this is a thing. Because I would say you might have a tendency to do it, but it is not always there. This is what we have to, to be careful. You see, because I'll talk about habits at one point. That's one of my speciality. But in terms of your question, what I would say is that there are different types of habits. There are what I would call habits which are light and that we can see and we can transform relatively easily at some point. There are other habits who are due to, I would say, conditional factors, especially from childhood, from environmental factors, which mean that they are much more difficult to, to dissolve. And so what we can do is not dissolve them, but actually make them less intense and also make them last less long. You see, my, my tendency, one of them, is to be is anger. And before, I would, I mean, in my youth, when I was young, I was terrible. I would sulk for days. I was a terrible sulker. That I have stopped through the meditation. But I still get a bit angry. I have a little uh, 
fiery tendency. But what I see is that I'm angry for two minutes and it poof goes. When before I would be angry for days. So I think we have to be careful what we're aiming for because often we want it not to be there anymore, ever. That actually gives it more power. So you have to see you have to see that the other thing you have to see is how does it manifest in different ways? Exploration. To see that actually judgment is useful. This is very important. Judgment is a creative function of the human being. I need to judge and to see this is a glass of water, this is a microphone. I doubt I, would, I could drink from the microphone. And I doubt this would amplify my voice. So judgment tells me I speak into the microphone, I drink from the glass. So judgment is very important. Judgment is what will be developed into wisdom. But it's to see, then it goes into this overdrive, what I would call proliferation, exaggeration. And then in a way, it's to, we have to bring it back to its creative function. And in a way to see, when you see yourself judging, not to say it's bad, to say, Maybe I don't need to do this now. This, I think, is one of it's to see it. Hmm, I don't need to do that now. I can't change anything about it. To judge it doesn't bring much to the situation. I let it go. So, you know, you have to, to also to see sometimes it's light judging. It will be much easier to deal with light judging than with intense judging. If somebody does something to you nasty, you will go into intense judging of yourself or him, her, and off we go. Then I would say, this is the way it is. You can't help it there. You'll have to deal differently with it. Just go back to the breath time to time. Just diminish the intensity. But it has to go through you, this. When it's habitual, it's more, hmm, maybe I don't need to do this now. Hmm, I have thought this judgment five times. Maybe I can stop now. You know? Next judgment, whatever. So in a way, to, to also the notice a different level of light, habitual, intense. Then in terms of the meditation, I would say there are the four stages. And they're not linear. They're just, you know, one is you see yourself at the end of it. Oh, I have been in kind of a judging, kind of intense thing. Then you see yourself in the middle of it. That's what might be happening now. You do a bit of meditation and then you in the middle of it, and you kind of, so where you're doing something which is not useful, and you can't stop it. And that's very frustrating. But the fact that you're aware of it generally make it last less long, because you're less invested, less caught. This is the way it is, this is true. It's kind of, you see it, it still goes through it, but less long. Then you start to look at what is it that triggers it. Because I would say you don't do it all the time. So what is it that triggers it? Maybe when you're tired, maybe when you're frustrated, when be something happening, somebody is saying something, whatever. And then you play with the trigger, what I would call creative distraction. That if the conditions are there that are going to trigger it, be careful. Become very aware of the conditions. If you're tired, try to rest a little. If something is difficult, try to maybe do something nice for you or whatever. I mean, they are very different. Each of us has different creative distractions. 
And then you have the fourth one. The fourth stage is when you see yourself before you go into the whole pattern. And if the power of awareness is strong, then actually it can make you see that you have a choice. Because why don't we change? Because we prefer the pain of the known than the known pain of the unknown. This is why we don't change. Because when you, we see the choice first, we're kind of very frightened. How can I do something I've never done before? And then you do it and you see it's okay. So in a way, I think it's a process. And with something, it will be easier than with others. And also, depending on the conditions. We are very... I mean, I'll talk again about this. I must stop now. But we have to see meditation is not to make us go above conditions. Meditation will help us to more creatively engage with conditions as they happen to be. This is very important. Anyway, I have to stop because you need to walk a little. And then we'll meet again at 8.30. Thank you.